Welcome to Supply Chain Now, the voice of global supply chain. Supply Chain Now focuses on the best in the business for our worldwide audience, the people, the technologies, the best practices, and today's critical issues, the challenges and opportunities. Stay tuned to hear from those making global business happen right here on Supply Chain Now. Hello, everyone. Happy Monday. Welcome to the buzz here on Supply Chain Now. I am Kelly Barner in for Scott Luton today, and I am joined by Greg White. How are you doing, Greg? I'm doing good. Thank you for being the adult supervision today. I really appreciate it. <laughs> it's actually a lot of pressure, right? Like, Which is being... why I let you do it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm thinking I need to be the adult and manage the situation and also facilitate you. So it's this is not a an entry level challenge, that's for sure. Well, you're not going to have any problems with me uh, having anything to say. I, I think we've established that pretty well. But and that's good. That's what we like. Somebody has to be the traffic cop and make sure we're talking about the right things and that someone doesn't get too far off topic. Well, and. We actually, this is an extra special episode of The Buzz today. We have a special guest here with us who would not normally be in on a Monday. Right. He is back in the green room. And as we were waiting for the broadcast to go live, Greg, he's handing out truth serum. Yeah. So That's I think right. this is going to be a very interesting conversation. Yep. Um, so it's, it's actually Mike Griswold from Gartner that we have here with us today. He's going to take us through some of the the recently announced Gartner Global Supply Chain Top 25. So we always like to hear the results of that ranking. Um, but before we say hello to a few people and before we bring in Mike with his truth serum, uh, we have a couple of events coming up. And I think, yeah. uh, thankfully, we've got Chantel, Amanda, and Catherine working production today. And they've got some links they're going to share with everybody. June 14th. There is a Supply Chain Now webinar coming up with Garvis and friends. Can AI be the unexpected ally for demand planners? Uh, which, interestingly, may come up in one of the news stories that we're going to talk about in the second half of this hour. Right. So that's one event that we have coming up. And the other is actually an Art of Procurement event that I would like to invite everybody to join. Category Palooza. Procurement needs a summer festival. Color dust optional. Uh, we have Category Palooza coming up. It's a virtual celebration of Category Insights, August 11th from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Eastern. It is free, so there's no reason not to sign up. So, so if you're not very good at the procurement game, what does that mean, Category Insights? I'm curious to learn more about that. So there are the things that apply across everything that procurement does. And Got then it. there are category specific things like, okay. for instance, a lot of people might not know this. One of the most, well, let me pick a good word, dramatic categories mm. to source is actually uniforms. Because not only is it a lot of times considered an HR category from the standpoint of being part of benefits, getting into garment sizes and shapes and cuts and who wears what and how much does it cost? And are they rented garments that are laundered by the company or do people own them and take them home and care for them? It right. is like all the fireworks you could ever want from any category of spend. 
Okay, that's a good one because, I mean, I, I, like I said, not a procurement specialist, but I've always wondered when a company makes you wear a uniform, why is it that you might have to pay for that? So I'm, mm -hmm. I think it'll be interesting to understand the different philosophies that companies have around that. So, Absolutely. Uh, but I get it already. There's, I mean, that's going to have a huge variation of cost depending on how you tackle that problem, right? And if you decide to lead change... Right now, you're really wading into dramatic waters. <laughs> well, we were talking before. I mean, you could argue even uniforms have a fashion component to them. And we were talking before we came on the air about fashion. And that's going to be one of our stories today as well. That is going to be. So let's pause very quickly and say hello. I'm already watching all of these comments roll in here. So let's say hello to a few people that have dialed in. Let me see. Whoa. Where do I want to start? Okay. A lot. Yeah. Hello, Ryan. I know we have, this is a good sign for a Monday. We've already got a lot of conversations going on. They, they must know that we invited Mike. <laughs> it's, it's not Are you us. suggesting it's, they're not here to see us, Greg? Yeah, possibly. Maybe <laughs> see, you. The truth serum's working. <laughs> this is evidence. It's already taken effect. They may be here to see you because you're, you're not always on the buzz. True. That is true. So we've also got Lucille with us. Love good emoji use, extra points for that. Yes. Uh, we have, let's see, we've got some, actually people are doing a very good job getting the flags in here today. Thank you for putting oh, in really? this extra effort. Look, we've got another flag here. Oh yeah. McFallon, hello. Greetings from Southern Africa. So glad to have you with us. We have a LinkedIn user from Belgium. So no emoji, but we have a very global audience with us here yeah. today. And let me say hi to one more person. Hello to Alejandro from Mexico. Uh -huh. So I think this bodes well. We're going to have a lot of different perspectives coming into today's conversation. Uh, you know, it'll be interesting considering the topics we're going to talk about, what the impact is right. in some of these countries as a lot of the news and whatnot that we talk about is somewhat regional or even just North America or national even, right? That's absolutely so, true. I'd love to get some perspectives from around the globe on some of this stuff. Yes. So everybody stay in those comments. Uh, Greg, are we ready to bring in our special guest? Always. Yeah. Let's, uh, without further ado, or how do you say that in the, in Boston? You say, I am wicked excited to announce that it is now time to swoosh in our good friend, Mike Griswold from Gardner. Hello, Mike. Wicked excited, Morning. Mike. Wicked. Yes. I haven't heard that in years. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Although I don't, come I don't, hang around with me more often. I don't know how wicked excited the Celtics fans are after they got drubbed yesterday. Ooh. But um, yeah. Yes. And I, I, I love. High. Yes. Well, yeah. Uh, and I think I think I think it will still go seven. Uh, I think the Warriors will will prevail, but the Celtics are too good to to not win. You know, three of seven. Um, and I, I really like the the intro around uniforms because the best thing about working from home is the uniform, right? Or lack thereof. Right. You and I perfect uh, did did the uh, we're wearing the uh, pandemic uniform a t shirt, yes. right? Yes, <laughs> yes. And you're both Kelly's wearing it so well as usual. <laughs> so. Mike, you were originally supposed to be with Supply Chain Now last week. Yes. I am a firm believer that there is no such thing as a coincidence, that everything happens for a reason, because now, as it turns out, you are here with us live on June 6th, 
2022, mm. which is the 78th anniversary of D-Day. Um, and we know that you're a big military historian. Yes. If I could get away with it, I would take I would take June 6th off every day, every year as as kind of a, a personal day. Um, yeah, to me, it's it is probably at least in my list. It's the the number one event in the 20th century, closely followed by landing on the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, if June 6th doesn't happen, chances are a whole lot of other things don't happen. And you know, mm-hmm. I don't want to say that we're not talking. Who knows what would have happened? But I think I think the complexion of the world. Yes. would have looked a lot different or looked differently than the way it looks today. Absolutely. Yeah. And one of the things that I know will happen every June 6th, I know this is a very small thing, but for me, it's become sort of part of the tradition of the day is that they always run a classic uh, Charles Schultz, Snoopy, you know, mm. be- part of storming the beaches on D-Day. And I knew that that would be part of my newspaper experience this morning. You can count on Snoopy to always be there where we need him to be. Uh, But, you know, seeing him come up through those hedgehogs embedded in the water on the beaches, that is, it's tradition, right? It's, it's now part of the day. Um, And so it's, it's always nice that we do continue to remember. And Scott actually shared some of his thoughts remembering, even though he's not with us here today. Yeah, I mean, if you if you ever want to get a pretty realistic perspective of what that was like, watch the opening sequence of yes. Saving Private Ryan. Absolutely. And it's very real. And uh, it makes you keenly aware of what that sacrifice was. Yeah, I've, I've been fortunate enough to have to been to Omaha Beach twice, the American mm-hmm. Cemetery twice. Um, it, it puts everything into perspective, not only kind of the sacrifice of the 9,000 U.S. soldiers that are buried there, but just the physical layout of the beach, Omaha Beach Mm -hmm. in particular. If you get a chance to go up the beach to Utah Beach to Point to Hawk, um, where the rangers scaled a cliff to to take out guns up top, it looks like the surface of the moon, the way it was bombarded before the rangers um, scaled the cliff. Uh, I, I encourage anyone that has a chance, you know, if you're in, France, if you're in Europe, um, spend a day there, and it, and it will put it will put that whole day in in perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. And I think well too said. part of the you know you talk about the landscape, Mike. Um, I know in some of these sessions I've mentioned we have a great museum about 15 minutes from where I live, the American Heritage Museum. They have a Higgins boat inside the museum. And of course, you can't wow. go in it but it's inside the building and you're, it's basically sitting on the ground. So you have sort of a sense of where the eye line of the soldiers in those Higgins boats would have been as they were pulling up to the beaches and as those landing doors opened for them to come running out. It really, it's very striking to see the craft itself. Yeah, two places here in the States, if people have an interest in this as we're talking about it, um, the D-Day Museum in New Orleans, which is where the Higgins boats were actually manufactured, uh, is a fantastic museum. There, there's a significant amount of information on D-Day itself, but about half the museum is dedicated to all the D-Days in the Pacific, which mm-hmm. is another area that is probably 
not as well understood as it needs to be in terms of what happened in the Pacific, because there were multiple D-Days in 92, 93, and even early 94, an island hopping towards Japan that happened before Omaha Beach. And then if you're really interested in something uh, kind of fascinating, there is, a, there is a D-Day memorial in Bedford, Virginia. It's not the easiest place to get to, but the reason it's in Bedford is Bedford had the highest concentration of soldiers lost per capita. Oh, they had they they had a National Guard unit that was in the very first wave on Omaha. They they lost something like nineteen of twenty one kids. I mean these, wow. these they were kids. I think the oldest was twenty one. There were three brothers. Um, if there's a book called The Bedford Boys. I highly encourage people to read that. It's about this this town uh, and, and how this town, over the course of three days, kept getting telegram after telegram after telegram uh, of the people that were lost in that opening, uh, opening wave. Hmm. So we're glad that you are here with us to remember today, Mike this June 6th and, and all others, uh, you're sort of the perfect guest to be joining right. Meg and I on the <laughs> no buzz doubt. today. On two fronts. Yeah, exactly. Right. The other front, of course, being that we are eager to hear your thoughts about sure. this year's uh, supply chain top 25. I actually think we have a, a link that we're gonna share with folks if they wanna go, not right now, but later, if they want to go and, and read some more. Sure. Um, but Mike, maybe give us a, a quick rundown of the overall how things turned out this year. Sure. So first and foremost, I don't know how many people are on our, our session today, um, but if they were on the reveal, we did a couple of weeks. About 1,200 um, people on our webinar reveal, which was a, a good number for us. We, we've been doing the reveal uh, via the webinar for now three years, uh, and, and I continue to be very grateful for the people that carve out time for that. So this was year 18 uh, of doing the list. Wow. It is probably one of, it may not be the, the largest, but it's one of the, the best known pieces of research that we have coming out of the supply chain. You know, certainly our magic quadrants and hype cycles are, are certainly very well recognized, but the top 25 is, is one of the, probably the more anticipated ones. Um, it, it, it um, certainly, you know, the, the purpose behind this was really, you know, several. We wanted to, you know, raise awareness around the supply chain and the role of the supply chain. I would suggest the pandemic helped us with that, right? Certainly accelerated the role of the supply chain. Right. You know, we, we really wanted to, to serve as a platform for people to learn from each other. And, and as part of that, you know, just raise the bar around how supply chains operate. And, and that definitely happened. And, and I'll talk a little bit about kind of how that manifested itself in the supply chain. But we really want it to be an opportunity for people to, to cross-pollinate ideas, which is why when we write the report, <laughs> we really try to, you know, inject what are these companies doing, right? What, what can you learn from someone like Cisco, even though you may not be a high-tech company? So uh, we're, we're really proud of, of the research, and uh, it certainly generates a lot of phone calls, as you might imagine, in emails, <laughs> right? Um, you know, not everybody can be number one. Um, yeah. you know, Cisco, number one, again, third year in a row. Um, you know, a really, really well-run supply chain. Uh, good numbers, 
from the from the financials that we have as part of the methodology. But 50% of the methodology is what does the supply chain community think of you? You know, that that 50% is equally divided between the analyst community, the Gartner analysts have a vote. And then the peer community could be many of people that are joining us today have an opportunity to weigh in on <clears throat> who do they think have the best supply chains in the world. And, you know, it's important for companies to, to, the, to the degree that they can, you know, that they share what they're doing. This is how we're making our supply chain successful. And here are things that you can do to make your, ch- your supply chain successful. So if you look at companies like Schneider Electric, <clears throat> Lenovo, you know, Dell, you know, th- they talk a lot about their supply chain and they're not shy about the things they've accomplished and they're not shy about sharing. Here's what you can do with your supply chain that we've done with ours. So we see it as a great way to, to share information. This year, though, to your, to your question, Kelly, this year um, I've been involved on and off for the 16 years I've been with Gartner, whether as an author, as a presenter, and now kind of the, the program owner of the top 25. This year was the hardest to get into the top 25 of any year that, that I've seen. So wow. we, we have a methodology. We create uh, a composite score for every company. We sort them from high to low. This year, when I compare the average composite score for the top 25 companies and I compare it to last year, the composite scores rose 11%. In any given year, right, if I look back across historically, you might see a 2 or 3% increase in the composite score year over year. This year was 11. We had companies that had a 9% increase in their composite score fall out of the top 25. Wow. So just think about that. All of their numbers went up. They just didn't go up enough to stay in the top 25. The number 25 spot, the composite score required to stay in number 25 went up 13%. So part of our mission to get people's supply chains to get better and to raise the bar has certainly happened. Uh, And we saw significant increases in in the financials, whether that's return on physical assets. We saw companies get much better than that. I know you're going to talk about inventory a little bit later. We saw inventory turns, another one of our measures go up. Um, So it it was just a lot harder to get into the top 25 this year which makes, I think, this year's list even just a little bit more special in terms of how hard it was to get in. Last thing is we had three new companies. We had um, Siemens, we had AstraZeneca, and then we had, which I know raised some eyebrows uh, and will generate, continue to generate phone calls uh, and emails. Uh, we had Microsoft land at number 10. Uh, a lot of folks, I think, are not familiar with some of the supply chain stories that Microsoft has, right? We think Hello, of them, Xbox. Yeah, yeah, think of them as Xbox. <laughs> right. or think of them as Office. Right. But um, they're doing a lot of really sophisticated things on the demand side. You know, in the global note, we talk about their ability to navigate not only a pandemic, but a chip shortage and navigate it fairly well. Um, so it, it's interesting. 
you know, every year we do get some new entrants, <clears throat> you know, had Microsoft landing in and then where they landed, right. uh, I think is a testament to not only how we're thinking about what does a supply chain look and feel like it start it's starting to look different differently but also just getting some some new new faces in there mm -hmm. so mike let me hold you there for a second greg sure. i'm curious to get your thoughts around you know mike certainly talked about how hard it was to get into the top 25 this year and the improvements that were necessary to rank any thoughts about what the fact that some companies were in fact capable of hitting those improvements and performing at that level, what that does for sort of supply chain as a whole, that the bar is that high? Yeah, I think it, I think it goes to the recognition not only of the consumer, but also of these gigantic companies that supply chain matters. I mean, Microsoft didn't, they didn't squeak their toe in the door. They came crashing through the door like, a, like an episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> And, and landed at, at number 10. So, um, you know, this, uh, you have to make incredible improvements. If a 9% increase in your score didn't even allow you to stay in the top 25, imagine what kind of improvements companies like my, like Microsoft and AstraZeneca must have made to, to get into the top 25 and to get deep into the top 25. So, I, I, I continue to go back to this, and that is this recognition of supply chain and procurement that that um, that the pandemic has wrought. Right? I mean, I, I still marvel at the fact that when I say supply chain, people oh, their eyes get big and they nod their head instead of slowly turning towards the bar and walking away. Um, by the way, I'm just happy to be anywhere where there are people and a bar. <laughs> these days. So still, still reveling in that. Um, but I, I do, I think that's, you know, that goes to that esteem level and that recognition level that we have always sought. And that's a double-edged sword, right? Because even these companies that improved so much, the competition caught them and passed them in some cases. So now the bar, as Mike has said, is even higher. So even if you are really improving your supply chain, you may not be doing it enough to stay atop your game because this sudden recognition, this sudden investment, the sudden rec recognition by the world that supply chain is the business is, you know, is raising that awareness and, and raising the competition for excellent towards excellence. And there's a lot of different categories of improvement, right, Mike? So what did you observe from, say, an ESG perspective in, in this year's Top 25? We It's a great question, <clears throat> Kelly. We introduced, uh, at the time, we called it CSR in uh, Corporate Social Responsibility. We introduced that into the methodology in 2016. Uh, a couple of years ago, we and, and at the time, it was heavily focused on the environment. So things around the UN Global Compact, Dow Jones Sustainability Index, Carbon Disclosure Program, you know, things around carbon, water, and forests. A couple of years ago, we again, listening to the community, we were hearing more and more, that's important, but there's also kind of social and governance elements that are becoming more important. Mm -hmm. So we, uh, a couple of years ago, we, we renamed that ESG, Environmental, Social, and Governance. We added... Um, two new elements to the methodology. 
looking at the uh, a list that Ethisphere produces around ethical companies. Bloomberg produces a gender equality index. Um, so, so we've really been trying to to round out that um, <clears throat> that part of the methodology. We it's based on a ten point on the accumulation of up to ten points, right? So, if you if you've signed the UN Global Compact as an example, that's a point. If you submit information to CDP, that's a point. If they give you a grade of A minus or, or higher in carbon and water, each of those are two points. So you can accumulate up to 10 points. This year, we had 19 of our 30 companies, so our top 25 and our five masters. 19 of 30 companies scored 10 out of 10. That was up almost 40% compared to the previous year. Wow. And and I know you guys are sitting down. It is up 217% from 2016. Wow. The, 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 uh, the emphasis that companies are placing on ESG is, is, is fantastic. It's growing. It's growing in importance. You know, we, we increased the weighting of ESG. Right. Um, to 20% of the methodology based on a lot of feedback that we get from the community saying, hey, this is an important element, right? And it continues to be important. And we're going to look at in 2023, how do we continue to, to broaden the partners that we have within ESG? Uh, it's also, we identified for folks that have either were on the webinar or had a chance to read the note, we identified four macro trends one of which is um, making progress against a broader sustainability agenda. That's kind of the fancy Gartner language for one of those trends. Basically what it means, it, it, it boils down to a couple of things. One, people are tracking what you say around your sustainability targets and you need to deliver or you're going to be held accountable. And secondly, people are broadening this sustainability topic to include DE&I, which I think is fantastic. Um, but we've got data that suggests, you know, where a company stands around ESG influences who wants to come work for you. We have data that suggests that the consumers are now starting to put your, your brand um, position on ESG into their decision tree. You know, I, I, you know, there's a lot of data out there that says people will will buy, will lean towards more sustainable companies. I'm not convinced that that voting has happened with the wallet yet completely, but there's definitely an increase in sentiment, which is important yep. for people to understand. So that ESG component um, is also, if you look at how the math works, you know, if you were an eight in ESG and all of a sudden you're now a 10, that that's a big add to your composite score, which is another way for people to start to climb, you know, up the list. Um, but ESG, it's it's a huge. We we're, we're, we I have on my team just to put it in perspective. I have uh, I need to do this with my fingers. I have Sarah, <laughs> Laura, Lindsay, uh, and Michelle and Kevin. I have five people on my team who cover sustainability. That's wow. how hot a topic it is for us at Gartner. Now, out of curiosity, I <clears throat> excuse me, we used to say CSR, as you said, we've moved to ESG, so we love our TLAs, our three-letter acronyms. Is 
ESG just the trendier way of saying CSR, or would you say that ESG is actually a different type of program? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, Kelly. I, I think it, what, um, at least the way that that I thought about it in this transition in the top 25 is, f- rightly or wrongly, CSR, if you look at under the covers, CSR was almost exclusively focused on environmental things. Mm-hmm. Not that that's wrong, that that was just the focus. So it was, you know, carbon, it was um, greenhouse gases, it was those types of things. I think what we recognized when we made the change to the methodology, and I think what the the general market is now recognizing is ESG is, is helping us to expand the things that we should be looking at into areas in in addition to the environment how we treat people are we you know diverse um you know how how are we as an organization thinking about broadening the perspectives that we have within our own organization we have some companies as an example who are who are linking kind of senior level compensation to a dei agenda so to me it yes i agree completely it is a TLA, but I think when when you look at how companies are defining ESG within their organization, they definitely have the spirit, which is it is the environment, but there's also social and how do we as an organization structure these activities that I think makes ESG kind of that next iteration of CSR, at least in my perspective. Sure. Greg, any perspective from from your point of view, either about what it means to include that type of of value set or priorities to the metrics that they're using at the framework, or you know, we talked a little bit as well about consumers are starting to move in that direction, but are they completely voting with their wallets in order to maybe reward the companies that that do that? What's your perspective on that? Well, let me address that. Last point first, Kelly. No, they clearly are not doing that because something like 73% of consumers say that they will do business with companies with whom they have common values or ethics. And only about 14%, at least this is maybe a year old statistic, but only about 14% are actually doing that. But as Mike said, the awareness and the sentiment is there and that sentiment will grow. I think part of the reason that consumers don't do it is because it's not easy. It's not easy to understand who is ethical, right? Who is using and not using slave labor? Who is using and not using conflict minerals, right? Who is who is a good actor and who's a bad actor? Um, but that transparency is coming more and more to the to the supply chain. What I do think is that ESG, everything that it represents, internal equity global equity, meaning human rights and those sorts of things, DE&I initiatives within your company, um, you know, sustainability, uh, good, co- good corporate governance, and, and all of the other aspects of, let's just call it fair play generally. You know that you both know that I feel like supply chain has for too long been a cost saving exercise and instead right. it should be a risk balancing exercise, right? And just my opinion, there are four things that contribute to risk in your supply chain, the speed, the ethics, the reliability, and the cost of 
of your supply chain, the fiscal aspects of your supply chain. So that maybe that's a, that's a FLA four letter acronym. <laughs> um, but, but ethics are a critical part of it because those are all, those create risks in your marketplace. Unless you're De Beers who gets away literally with murder over and over again. Um, if you, if you use, if you have bad actors or you are a bad actor in the industry, that has the potential to uh, tank your brand esteem as it's discovered. And as we know, supply chain is one of the greatest contributors to all of those kind of things uh, or participants, I should say. I'm not so certain it's contributor, but things like sustainability and human rights and fair trade and, and even impacted by things like political unrest and Im impacting those things as well. So I think it is in my opinion, one of the four cornerstones of supply chain. It just has not been specifically recognized mm -hmm. as such. Some companies still, Kelly, they do use ESG as a kind of a flag-waving opportunity. But uh, again, I don't really care why you do good mm -hmm. as long as you do good. And eventually, as people see that it has a fiscal impact on their business and that they can be more profitable with... ESG as a core part of their supply chain, they'll do it. Absolutely. Now, Mike, you had mentioned early on that you have received and are continuing to receive tons of emails and, and voicemails. We've shared the link to the research, uh, which people are going to wait about 28 minutes before going to check out. <laughs> <laughs> but if Teacher says. <laughs> that's right. Do not take your focus off this live stream. We are not done. But Mike, if people would like to get in touch with you and ask questions or share their thoughts about the 25 companies that ended up on your list, what is the best way for people to get in touch with you? Sure. <clears throat> LinkedIn is fine. Uh, email me directly. Mike.Griswell at Gardner.com is fine too. I'm still relatively old school around email. So that that's fine too. would love to hear people's thoughts on the list, thoughts on the methodology. You know, we, we'll, we're going to take a hard look at... Uh, the 2023 methodology as we move into the summer. Um, so happy to get feedback around that. I have one, one ask in particular. You know, I, I think right now, certainly I'll be the first to tell you the methodology is not perfect. And, and there are certainly things that people can, can provide feedback on. The gap that I have right now <clears throat> is, is innovation. You know, I, I don't have, you know, a, a well-defined, metric or or indicator of innovation in the mm. methodology and and I would like to try to solve that for 2023. You know, Greg you alluded to this as did you Kelly. Supply chains are being asked to be more innovative and they're being asked to support innovation. Uh, and we don't we don't have a good measure of that um, in the methodology, but <clears throat> all feedback is welcome. Excellent. Well, thank you, Mike. We are so thrilled that you were able to be with us here today. Make sure to carve some time out for yourself this afternoon to watch a little History Channel, yes. maybe a little Saving Private Ryan um, to, to remember this day. But thanks so much for being with, with us to talk about the Top 25. Hey, thanks for fitting me in. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Yep. Take bye -bye. care. Mm. Aren't we so good to fit Mike in? Fit Mike in. <laughs> That's, that is an incredibly humble dude. We right? will take Mike anytime. We'll fit Mike. <laughs> <laughs> and the people that are watching, 
are absolutely as enthusiastic about this as we are. Um, Dr. Ronza, Bumpenza, Zimmerman, we totally agree. The progress yeah. made year over year and, and the fact that Mike is not content with the framework as it is. He's yeah. he issued that challenge trying to find a way not just to capture innovation, but I think the challenge is the measurement that goes with it. Even the difference between CSR and ESG, this is my non-Gartner explanation, I would say CSR was very huggy-fuzzy and sort of feel good, whereas ESG is very metric-driven because a lot of it has come from regulation. Um, so not yeah. easy what these guys are trying to achieve with this ranking. I think it's to be expected from Mike. I mean, I've known Mike for a long time, and he was a practitioner, right? He didn't come out of school with an MBA and say, I'm going to analyze technology in the supply chain realm, right? He did it first. So he knows what's practical. I can assure you as a uh, supply chain technology solutions provider, he's tough to impress. He really is because he can ask really tough questions about, you know, can you solve this? And he is constantly trying to push the initiative forward to particular um, uh, um, analysts at Gartner. He and Tom Enright, both practitioners, have that ability to kind of challenge you as either a practitioner or a solutions provider to uh, be real, right? There's no fluff when talking to these guys. And I think that that really, really comes through his ability to both use his experience, which is substantial, but also to be open to innovation. And, and you can see the pain that it causes him as we were talking about, um, we were talking about how, retail um, has has or hasn't come forward before the show um, he really he really has a unique ability to use that experience and forget that experience and realize that innovation could trump that experience uh, going forward absolutely and real quick before we pivot here recommendation from our good friend Peter Bolay if you're looking away to Remember D-Day, Band of Brothers, both the movie and there's also yeah. a 10-part series. Um, and The Pacific, another recommendation. So make a note of those. If you have a chance to fit those into your afternoon, please make some space and do that. Um, but Greg, we have other stuff we need to talk about. And our friend Clay Phillips has created a, a new greeting for us. Happy I love that. <laughs> It's officially I'm going to totally swipe that, Clay. Thank you. <laughs> well, you saw it here first. Clay officially gets credit. Yep. We are going to do a little bit of buzz. And we've talked about this a bit. We actually have a few different news stories we're going to try to hit. And one of those in particular pulls together a lot of the different things that we've talked about today. It's an article from the Wall Street Journal, Macy's Gap and other clothing stores are stuck with the wrong items. So inventory management remains a challenge. All of these retailers have talked about the fact that inventory levels are up in the 30s over where they were last year. Um, and I believe in particular, Old Navy talked about the fact that 20%, you know, if 33% is up year over year, 20%, they wish they didn't even have it. And right. so these companies are starting to run into tough situations in addition to facing inflation. 
in addition to trying to figure out how they're going to grow and anticipate consumer demand, not an easy situation, Greg. It's amazing. I'm going to say it. I have to say it. The more things change, the yes. more they stay the same. I cannot believe in this era that we are hearing about some of the major retailers, Macy's Gap, Kohl's, and even Walmart having these kind of problems that are historic. I mean, by historic, I mean going back to the beginning of, of department stores back in the 1800s when Macy's was founded. They've always had these problems because, and we talked with Mike about this uh, in the green room, because they still treat merchandising as separate from supply chain mm. and as art more than science. And, and frankly, art thrown in the face of science, even when science can help. I've been on both sides of that. I have been an offender as a merchant <laughs> with uh, short life cycle products, not always fashion, but sh short life cycle products. Um, and I've been on the supply chain side trying to help, even with the credibility of having been one of those merchants. Um, and the fact is you are kind of locked into this perspective of I more than any machine, more than any science, more than any, um, math mathematics. I, me, one person know exactly what the millions and millions of potential customers that my product line has, I know better than anyone possibly could. And that is the fatal flaw. So, you know, and secondarily, by the way, the way that we predict what will happen um, in supply chain on the whole, but particularly when it comes to short life cycle goods, is to look at last year and go, this year will be 10% better than last year, 20% less yeah. or whatever. And that's not forecasting. That's what I call postcasting, <laughs> right? You have to consider what's going to yeah. make things change. As you read through this article, which I would encourage people to do, I don't know if, uh, if we drop the link, but if we could, uh, uh, as you think about this, you realize that they are looking back at 2020 and 2021 and going, some variation of that will happen, mm -hmm. which seems impossible to fathom e even as a common consumer that a company could not see that the world has changed and how you predict what people are going to do needs to change as well. So they've done it to themselves yet again. It's disappointing, um, not uncommon, and only four re retailers are really called out here, but I'm sure there are others and some that are even worse offenders than these. But it really goes to the point, Kelly, that we need to change how we predict and what we predict in supply chain. Well, here's what I find interesting, and, and maybe you can help me sort of reconcile this. So That's what we're right. saying is that this is a foundational, long-running challenge yep. that has existed. And yet, if we think about what Mike just told us, supply chains have never been so amazing and powerful. Right. And yet, we're still running up against some of these foundational challenges. There is clearly something that is not being addressed even though Gartner's minds are blown by the improvement year over year that needed to be seen. And even with the expansion into things like ESG above and beyond, you know, inventory turns and more traditional measures of, of supply chain performance. How do we hold those two thoughts in our heads at the same time? 
Because in a lot of cases, we're coming from a place where performance was so atrocious in the past mm. that it can only improve by leaps and bounds, right? Small companies grow by small dollars, but large percentages, right? And it's, it's, it's remarkably similar with supply chains in, in certain areas. And, and you know, again, uh, I don't know who might be listening that's not that familiar with supply chain, but supply chain is a really broad term. And the way that you manage, for instance, fast-moving consumer goods or perishable products is a whole lot different than how you handle uh, short life cycle, short season, and fashion products. So there are all kinds of variations that exist in a company. I'm going to use Walmart as an example, who spent $11 billion on supply chain over the last two years. $11 billion dollars. And their inventory is up 33% over last year. And as you said, and, and as Catherine before the show said, <laughs> I go to my Walmart and they've got everything I don't want and nothing I do. Um, that's paraphrasing. She wasn't quite that dramatic about it, but it sure sounded good, didn't it? Um, <laughs> but anyway, but I think lots of consumers can relate to that. It feels like they don't have anything that you want and they've got all this junk and um, and a lot of that junk is, you know, it's yoga pants and sweats and t-shirts. I wore this t-shirt to honor the, the, whatever you want to call it, miss forecasting, I think is what the term they use in the article, miss forecasting of some of these retailers. But that's the reason is because so many supply chains have been so bad in the past mm -hmm. and they can go up by big percentages. The other is that some have really, really made uh, a significant initiative, not necessarily to spend money, but to really, really improve. Mm -hmm. And also, particularly as regards the top 25 with, with Gartner, they raised the weighting of ESG. And some supply chains are very, they're very uh, ESG uh, friendly. Mm -hmm. And as you saw, what did he say? 10 or 19 of 30? had a 10 out of 10 score and with scores. the waiting on that, um, I could see that causing some supply chains to falter and some to grow pretty dramatically in terms of, of improvement. And given the tie into this specific article, I would be completely not doing my job if I didn't shamelessly plug one of my most recent episodes of Dial P for procurement here right. in supply chain now, because on top of the complexity of the supply chain and garments getting stuck leaving Thailand and things not getting unloaded off of container ships and fickle consumer demand. Old Navy managed to look at this complicated situation and double it and make it more complicated by changing the way they manage women's clothing sizes. So on top of all this, they said, we're going to change the way we manage size. We're gonna go from, I think it was zero to 30, an extra small to 4XL, they're no longer going to be separated into different departments in the store, which meant they needed new mannequins. They had to work with a research firm to figure out what the distribution of sizes should be. Some of the garments had to be redesigned because as you scale things, pockets need to move or belt loops need to move or mm. you know, darts and seams need to move. And then after all that, because the clothes are hanging all together, 
you can't really have the price be different, even if the cost is very different to make a 4XL right. garment from what it is to make an XS garment. And so they created that situation for themselves and also misallocated the sizes. So they already had an inventory problem. Now they have an extra expensive inventory problem because they have the garments at the outer ends of that size range that weren't sold. And then poor Catherine goes to the store and not only can she not get yogurt from her Walmart, she can't get the size that she wants from Old Navy. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to guess that Catherine is not a 4XL. I'm thinking she's going to be closer to the zero end, right? Um, and, and you're right. That, that is very common. That mm. um, They build these allocation models for largely chain-wide because since so much human and very little technology is involved in this process, it's too hard to get down to... Yes. What is the mix in the store? Are there more tall people, short people, thin people, fat people around this store, right? Um, which is how it should really be done. They could alter the mix um, mm -hmm. of, of sizes and styles and colors in various stores. But as that process is so manual, Kelly, it makes it incredibly difficult to do that. Yes. And we've actually got an interesting couple of comments I want to pull in here. Great thought from T-Squared. Thank you for being back with us today. Supply chain can no longer be viewed as a stepchild in the strategic decision-making process. Amen. It's finally it time to get still is in some cases. status. <laughs> sorry, say that again, Kelly. I'm sorry. And we, we finally deserve firstborn status. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, it probably still is being treated that way in some cases, but to the peril of companies. And again, to this article. Kelly, they talked about how companies that can't, um, for instance, they just talked about two channels. If you can't run the store, right, yes. the store channel and the e-commerce channel, that is at your own peril as a company. And I didn't say a peril, own peril. <laughs> uh, and, and that is a difficulty for some companies. And some companies who really should have been that good, like mm -hmm. Sears, have completely disappeared. The company who literally invented mail order. Yes right? Couldn't make it in the electronic mail order age. Um, so I think, I think that, you know, that's one aspect of it, but you're right. It, um, it can no longer be, which is not to say that it's not being, but again, <laughs> should uh, not. just at your own peril. And we also have a, a good comment from Mohib, finding the balance between just in time inventory and just in case inventory could be the key difference in cost savings, customer service levels, and profitability. So that that's a really good point. Sorry, I just have to address this because it is it, it is a mythical perception that everyone uses just-in-time inventory in the supply chain. Retailers and distributors do not use just-in-time inventory. They have always used just-in-case inventory, meaning they have safety stocks in case the forecast is wrong or a delivery is late or or whatever, right? It's only manufacturers who have foisted all this extra inventory into retail and distribution who use just in case. And, and when the problem with a product availability is at the manufacturing or the brand level, it impacts the entire supply chain because if craft don't have it, nobody don't get it. So <laughs> um, I, I think that it's important to understand that because, um, you know, retailers and 
and distributors have long borne the burden of extra inventory that manufacturers don't. Yeah. Now, as we move on to our, our next story that we're going to discuss, I had also shared recently that business is my favorite sport. So if I have to pick a traditional sport, I love NASCAR. Uh, equally aggressive and dangerous and sometimes loud is business. And so I have been following all of the developments of our friend Elon Musk attempting to take Twitter private. Right. And we quietly passed a very interesting milestone on Friday. A lot of the different publications had a very quick story acknowledging that we had passed the milestone. And that was that the 30-day review period where the FTC or DOJ could stop the acquisition for the sake of antitrust, that window has now closed. Yeah. And it was unlikely, you know, Tesla doesn't play in the media space and, um, you know, SpaceX as, as well. So there wasn't a lot of concern riding on the antitrust reason for stopping the acquisition. Mm -hmm. But I am fascinated watching this, this deal go forward. And I suspect, Greg, I'll be interested to get your thoughts on this. I suspect that there's sort of two processes being run in parallel. There's the process that's marching its way slowly forward towards approval. We've got shareholder approval coming up soon. And then there's sort of the public PR war where we hear the deal is paused. We hear that there's upset about how many real or fake accounts there are on Twitter. But financing is still being aligned. And so we, we sort of have this perception publicly based on statements that is it going to happen, but quietly behind the scenes, we're plugging forward. Uh, do you have any gut on whether this deal is going to go through? Is there going to be a, a surprise between now and say October, November when it could be finalized? Well, a, a shareholder would be a complete idiot not to approve this at this point because mm -hmm. the company's uh, market cap is only $30 billion and they're being offered 50, almost 50% 50 more than that, yeah. right? They're being offered a dollar fifty for a dollar's worth of, of, of stock. So they'd be insane not to take it. Um, the, I think the, the question in the balance is regardless of all the noise that's made around this about what Elon Musk should or shouldn't own. And I mean, by the way, I'm barely on Twitter for any of you who follow me. I post a few <laughs> articles a week on there um, and maybe make a go chiefs comment every once in a while um, or rip to certain uh, important uh, actors who may pass away. Um, good fellas. Um, but uh, I, I think that, I think that what, we'll see, we could see is Elon Musk change his mind. I mean, now he is paying $44 billion for a $30 billion company. And, you know, he may change his offer. He's hinted at, at that in the past. Um, and um, he'd certainly be justified in doing so. That would kind of restart the whole process. But, uh, you know, I've, I've been through this process. It doesn't go to the FTC for potential approval until the deal is effectively done. So this mm -hmm. deal is effectively done. In fact, I've talked to accountants about this, about when you book the deal, is it when the offer is accepted and the paperwork is signed or is it when the FTC approves the deal and the money changes hands? And that's literally 
at this point, all that has to happen is for the money to change hands. I'm not even sure now that the FTC has missed or that window of of denial has expired. I'm not even sure what what options Elon Musk has. For the rest of us who aren't billionaires, we don't <laughs> we can't just hire a hundred million dollars worth of attorneys to do this. But the presumption is that this deal is done. So just from a purely fiscal and at least uh, surface level legal standpoint. And this will shock you, Greg. I also am not a billionaire. So for me, this- Well, your is... office sure looks nicer than mine. <laughs> we just, we'll just, we we put on the airs of being billionaires, there you go. right? But, but don't right. have the actual money to throw around. This situation strikes me when one of my kids makes a mistake. I will say to the other two, this is a free lesson for you because you didn't have to make the mistake to learn the lesson. And I'm right. certainly not saying this is a mistake, but I think this story with all of the attention and coverage that it's garnering is an opportunity for all of us not billionaires to watch how the process works and learn from it. And, and to your point, there's, you know, where are we really in the process? And then there's looking at it from the other perspective. Can it be stopped? at this point. I think that's a, a different way of looking at it, but I, I find this fascinating. I think this is Mike teased when he joined us in the, the green room. Uh, no, the Boston Celtics are not raging their way through this, this round that they're playing in, but uh, this has sort of all the drama and the nail biters and the excitement uh, that I think any sporting event does. So I'm personally enjoying watching it. Uh, we're all in the cheap seats on this one, as Scott would say. Yeah, yeah, I, I think, look, compared to Elon Musk's seat, everyone is in the cheap seats, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like the luxury box encompasses the entire field and the rest of us are standing outside at the tailgate watching this happen. <laughs> um, and, and probably most of us know about as much about yeah. it from that, you know, as if we were from that standpoint. So. Um, it is fascinating to watch. Uh, I can't argue. I think Peter said something about how there, it could be argued there's some stock price manipulation going on here. Um, we'll pull that up. And, and yeah, and, um, I, I can't argue that that could be the case. I know that the SEC routinely, um, and, uh, routinely, um, points out to what are called influencers, which usually they mean movie stars and people like that, not to make those kind of comments because they can have a big impact on the price of the stock. But fortunately or unfortunately, there's nothing illegal about, about that. Um, and the truth is he may be uncovering some truths in a company uh, that, I mean, it, it is very rare for a $44 billion Yes. offer to be on the table and a $30 billion market cap to be I existent in any way. It, it sh the price should be hovering right around that $44 billion level. So if I was a gambling man, which I'm not, <laughs> I might throw a few bucks at, at Twitter stock, but anything could happen. Uh, you yeah. know, the, 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 you know, whatever the, the, anything I'm just going to say with anything could happen. Sorry. I've, I'm completely <laughs> overwhelmed by this, frankly, Kelly, yeah. to, to your point, the entertainment value of this is really the fun in it. The oh. rest of it is beyond all of us. It frankly is beyond all of us. 
And I'll, I'll I'll read this this comment from Peter into the into the conversation. Elon Musk has eroded billions in stock portfolios thanks to his insane Twitter tweets. I have nothing good to say about the man, but what I will say is that you have to have some amount of respect for a person that can come out with a very short statement and 80% of the world erupts in response to it. So yeah. love the man, hate the man, agree with his choices, disagree with his choices. Speaking of influencer, Greg, right? I mean, if you can get that kind of a rise out of people, to some extent, you just sort of have to say, well done. You, you know, he operates on a different plane than the rest of us do. He is hyper, super, whatever's above super genius, that's what he is. I mean, clearly from, and, and clearly just my opinion on the spectrum somewhere approaching Asperger's, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, but, and I think that's, that's part of his genius. And this is something that we have to accept in geniuses. I mean, lots of geniuses are rough around the edges. Let's yeah. just put it that way, which is not to say everyone who's rough around the edges is a genius, by the way. <laughs> And Elon Musk said it himself when he was hosting Saturday Night Live. I make rocket ships and electric cars for a living. Did you expect me to be a normal guy? <laughs> right? His own words, his perspective. Yeah. We, we, especially in this case, we need our geniuses to be, whether it's rough around the edges or a little bit wacky. Um, I totally agree with you. That is where the entertainment value comes from. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun to watch at the very least, right? And we will continue watching. Um, now you got me watching it again. I, I had tuned out. Because <laughs> you can't binge watch it. It This is old school TV. It only rolls out in the speed that it's rolling out in. You can't just dedicate a Saturday and watch the entire thing and know how it ends. We're all waiting. Right. Kind of like the last season of Peaky Blinders. That's what we're all waiting for. That is what we're all waiting for. But on that note, Greg, we have used up our hour. Uh, we had a great time. Wisely, I think, Griswold. don't you? You know what? I think we made very good use of our time. I'm glad we all took those shots of truth serum before coming out of the green room. I think it made for an right. interesting conversation. Uh, thank you, everybody who made comments, who joined us from the skyboxes, we will say. Um, but as we sign off, I will do this in Scott's honor, although he cannot be here with us. As you go out into your day, do good, give forward, be the change that's needed. Thank Amen. you all so much for joining us for today's Buzz on Supply Chain Now. I'm Kelly Barner here with my co-host and co-conspirator, Greg White. Have a great rest of your day, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for being a part of our Supply Chain Now community. Check out all of our programming at SupplyChainNow.com and make sure you subscribe to Supply Chain Now anywhere you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. See you next time on Supply Chain Now. <laughs>